All right, this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service that shows exceptional films from around the globe. If you have been listening to Owls at Dawn for an extended period of time, you know the deal. Mubi is sick because they premiere a new film every single day. They do like coverages on iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There's always something really new and fresh to check out at Mubi. Um, I love it. It's my number one go-to streaming service. I watch it all the time. Time, and I'll tell you in a second, but they have some legit stuff in the Australian library at the moment. Troy, do they have some stuff that's got your eye uh, interested at the moment in the American library? Yeah, I'm looking at the American library, like you said, and there's a couple of really interesting uh, East Asian films um, oh, that I uh, love a lot. Uh, remember Stephen Chow, the guy who did Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle in those movies? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's great. And he did a movie based upon the uh, the Chinese legend, the Monkey King legend oh, called yeah. Journey to the West. Yeah, mm. um, there's been a couple of them. I've only seen the first one, which is the one that they have up on movie right now. And it's it's wonderful and has some of that ridiculous Stephen Chow energy in it. Oh, that's sick. Um, so if you love those movies and you got to see all of his, his uh, filmography and also they also have a uh, battle royale. A movie that I saw, I think, when I was a teenager, but rocked my world. You remember that one, right? So good, bro. So good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So if you love Squid Game, then you love the, uh, the OG, Battle Royale. Or if you love Hunger Games, uh, then you'll love Battle Royale. Yeah. Go to go to the original. Um, yeah, movie's so sick. Uh, pretty much each and every film is hand-selected. They have this genius crew of curators that are always finding the goodies from festival gems to international treats to classics of Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera. So it's basically like your own personal film festival that you can stream anytime and anywhere. And I just have to, I just have to gush because right now in the Australian library, they have so many sick films. I'm literally, dude, I was looking through and I was like, holy shit, amazing film, amazing film. One is... Bro, did I ever tell you about the documentary adaptation of the of Tama Piketty's book Capital in the 21st Century? That I, I, I yeah, I remember the, you talking about that. Yeah, I went to the premiere of it here at the Sydney Film Festival because it's directed by Justin Pemberton, who's an Australian filmmaker. But that film is on movie right now, which is freaking crazy. Uh, then my favorite Studio Ghibli film, The Red Turtle, is on there. Oh it's, yeah. Oh my god, I had like a religious experience when I saw that in the movie theater. <laughs> It was crazy. So the red turtle is there. Uh, hold on. What else did I see? Amore, the Michael Haneke film, is on mine at the moment. Um, oh, yeah. The Hunt, the Thomas Vinterberg Hunt film that we even talked oh. about. <laughs> Maybe the best movie of the 2010s. Oh, my on the short God. List. Yes. But I will never watch it again also. <laughs> I don't need to. I've seen it. I, I, I've seen it twice and that's fuck, That's enough. It was. It is in my memory forever. Uh, the Hard Day's Night film, the Beatle film, um, The Host by Bong Joon-ho, oh. Barking Dogs Never Bite by Bong Joon-ho. It looks like they're going to be doing a Bong Joon-ho thing um, in the Australian one. So anyway, just a sick rotation. That just gives you a tiny little snippet of uh, the great stuff that movie has to offer. And it's like that all the time. There's always amazing films. And those are just the films that I know that are good. There's also films by like uh, Elaine Rene on here, who is a French filmmaker who I need to know more about. There's Assault on Precinct 13 by John uh, John Carpenter in mind. There's always oh, stuff yeah. by amazing filmmakers on movies. So make sure that you check out movies so you can get in all of this goodness. And if you go to movie.com, slash owls at dawn you will get a whole month of great cinema for free so you'll get a 30 day 30 day free trial at movie.com slash owls at dawn or of course you can click the link down below all right let's get into this madness 
They realize that certain goals within liberalism aren't achievable with liberal means. There's a kind of incoherence in liberalism as it as it exists. So. Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we can bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to be talking about an essay that was making the rounds on the old interwebs by Liam Kofi Bright uh, called Why I Am Not a Liberal. Uh, Troy, can you give people a little teaser about this essay? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know how to give a teaser about this. Um, <laughs> it's a bit difficult to to summarize, but I mean, there's a long tradition of academics and especially philosophers writing why I am not an X uh, from like Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian to I'm sure many others that you can think of. Um, and so uh, Liam Bright here is is sort of giving in like anti-apologetics or whatever. It's both a a, a sort of really short history of conceptual history of liberalism, uh, what the what liberal social theory is, and then a couple of really broad based reasons for rejecting it, mm. um, which I don't think is meant to necessarily be a, a like a treatise or a polemic, and maybe the way you might think, so much as like a um, like a like a starting point for discussion is really how I, th I think it probably was meant to be. Uh, yeah. which is what we're going to, I think, do here. So, Yeah, and he's even now posting replies to his initial post down at the bottom of the blog post as they come up. So I think there's like four or five like substantial written replies that he's linked to that he's kind of saying, oh, and so-and-so is objecting to my take on this, and they said this, and that's made me think about this. So he's, you know, in true philosophical fashion, I think, put this out there as a real think piece, not the way that we think of think pieces today that are all about the polemic. This is a way of opening up the dialectic, we might say. So um, in the old uh, Socratic sense, not in maybe the Hegelian sense, although maybe that too. But uh, so yeah, so we'll get to that when we get to our main segment. Um, we got some housekeeping because uh, we got a Patreon. So remember that if you want to support us, you can at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. That's patreon.com slash owls at dawn, where we have some uh, goodies up there for people who throw us some pennies every month. And we've been running our patron-sponsored poll, which is where we let you choose what episode you want us to talk about next. And then we put it up to a poll and we let you all vote on it. And right now we have a tie. We have a tie between two um, two topics. So, Troy, what are the two topics that are tied? Yeah, so our two topics are one being uh, the Book of Job and the other being whether it's possible to be an ethical CEO slash bourgeois class trader. So oh, very shit. different topics. So I'm guessing uh, everyone's going to have a pretty stark uh, ranking there one's yeah. clearly above the other yeah so we're gonna leave the poll up for one more week so make sure you run over there if you are a patron and cast your vote now if you're not a patron and you want to get in on that go to owls uh, patreon.com slash owls at dawn and then we can hopefully break that tie and then we'll announce on the next episode which uh which episode won out and then that will be the next patron chosen topic so cool cool yep. 
All right. Well, let's get into this madness the way we start off every mother effing episode. It is with the shitty minute. This is the segment of the podcast where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that is ticking us off. So, Troy, it is your turn to vent. So vent away, my friend. Where do you think the etymology of ticking something off? Where does that come from? Like, I don't think about being uh, literally being ticked off as being that seems like you're checking something. Oh, yeah, I was thinking, I was, yeah, tick, tick, ticking off like a checklist, right? Like you tick it. Yeah. You put it, you put a little tick, but like, like if I'm ticked off, like I'm, maybe it's just a a stupid evangelical euphemism that became part of common parlance, right? So, because they didn't want to say I'm pissed off because piss sounds like urine. So then they're like, I'm ticked off, you know, like, gosh, darn it. I wonder if being ticked is like being slightly hit and the way that when you tick a check mark, it's kind of like a real slight, real slight hit, right? Yeah. That might be it. Yeah. You know what? That's let's go with it. That's the answer. (laughs) Well, what's got me a little bit, a little bit ticked is, um, so I went to a, uh, a music festival that's in, um, the current region in which I live uh, a couple of weekends ago. And, What's interesting about this music festival is, well, first of all, it's like an avant-garde kind of music festival. A lot of um, some somewhat popular acts, but a lot of uh, avant-garde noise kind of acts and stuff like that. And and I really enjoyed myself. But generally speaking, I hate music festivals. (laughs) And the main reason for hating music festivals is because it's the worst possible uh, context to listen to music, right? Mm-hmm. Usually music festivals are like out in the fucking desert somewhere, right? It's gross. It's dry. It's usually in the summer because then the weather's not going to usually be a problem, at least back in, you know, on the West Coast of the States. Um, all these bands are playing at once. So all the sounds are bleeding together. They're usually 25 to 30 minute sets. So you barely have enough time for the band to really get into it. The bands fucking hate it. You can tell there's no energy, right? It's outside. So the acoustic... Acoustics are terrible, right? Hmm. Um, and for most major music festivals, unless you're the biggest bands there, you're being paid basically nothing, if not having to pay to be there. So it's drudgery and you hate it and you get that feeling from the bands themselves. They want to get the fuck out of there the second that it's over. Everything about music festivals makes it worse. Like everything about the, the, the structure, how it's set up, makes it as bad as it could possibly be. And sometimes bands shine through and they perform really well and it's a great experience anyway, but it would have been better if it wasn't at the festival, right? right. Pretty much universally. So music festivals largely suck. I've been to many, but I usually <laughs> don't want to do or would rather have a different context if I could you know, have my druthers. But this music festival, it's called the Big Ears Music Festival, happens every year. And um, they have it in our little town here. And the interesting thing is they don't it's they occupy all the different music venues and they even makeshift oh, so some music like venues. Festival. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, and so you walk around town oh. and um, you go to the various venues. A bunch of the churches um, were made into places for, you know, the quieter acts. Um, some like uh, warehouses were kind of transformed into little music venues for some of the like electronic and noise acts. Uh, and then the big venues house some more of the the rock and jazz and stuff acts, and and some of the uh, theaters too, obviously. And so um, the experience was wonderful. It was great. 
And I'm thinking as I'm going through this experience, and this is the first time I've, I'm sure other festivals do this, but this is the first time I've been to a music festival where it was, it was structured this way. Like, why did we ever do anything different than this for a music festival? Like just go to a town and just reserve all the different venues for the weekend for all of your acts. All the acoustics are going to be so much better. Right? The context for the sounds going to be so much better. It gets to be like downtown in a populous place. So there's lots of good food readily available. So no one's getting, you know, jobbed on like $8 waters or whatever, right? It's not out in the middle of nowhere. So you don't have to drive a bunch of hours and possibly like sleep in a tent and possibly get sexually assaulted and stuff that happens at actual music festivals, right? Like it's really easy to improve on all of these matters by just having it in a downtown somewhere in this way. Why is this not a thing? Why do music festivals suck so much? Like, is it is it penance? Are they all masochists? Does everyone just hate themselves? And so they, they make music festivals because they want to hate themselves actively? Like, is that why music festivals exist? Why can't we do it like this? That's my question. Do you could have any insight? Yeah. Could you fucking imagine if Lollapalooza descended upon fucking Hollywood? Could you imagine? It would be the worst thing <laughs> in the history of humanity. Those people are already insufferable. The fucking lot. Could you imagine if everyone was all dressed up in their like <laughs> pseudo shamanic uh, boho chic outfits, just strolling high on ecstasy, just strolling the streets of Los Angeles in the hundreds of thousands or however many fucking people go to that concert over a couple of days and then just wandering around to like pinks to try to get hamburger or to try to get hot dogs? They would fucking destroy the city. Like, first of all, I can't. Well, Austin. Imagine- yeah. Awesome. You're, you're kind of acting like that's not what L.A. already is. I, but that's what I mean. L.A.'s already at the brim, bro. <laughs> it's already it can't take any more madness. Push it over the edge into chaos. Yeah. yeah. It'd become a John Carpenter film at that point. <laughs> bro, it would be dystope. It would be like some fucking like 19, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger or Bruce, Bruce Willis, like <laughs> 80s, 90s action dystopia. That's what it would look like. People would be it would be insane. It'd be way too much. Um, so no, that would be fucking horrible. It works when you've probably got like not when, when you don't have Kid Cudi and the Foo Fighters headlining, you know, like it probably works when it's not because then you're going to get 50,000 people that want to come to one. So you'd have to like limit the amount of tickets. So you'd have to have like what the Wiltern Theater one night has fucking, I don't know, Kid Cudi and uh, fucking Donald Glover. And then 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 the next night or maybe at the same time, like the venues and there's no parking in L.A. So that would be a disaster. Um, well, I mean, L.A. would be the worst place for it. But the, the, the point is, it would all have to be within a few mile radius, which is what it was here. Okay. You just couldn't do it somewhere where that didn't exist. You'd have to have the infrastructure to do it, which is why we should have good transportation infrastructure. Oh, <laughs> right? so you just so want to have what you're saying festivals. is you just want a different world to live in is what you're saying. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> okay. Can everything just be different so our music festivals cannot suck? That's a really good reason here's to have an, a better society. Here's another reason why they do it in the current way that they do it. Because they like charging $8 for a bottle of water. They like Well, yeah, this, of course. They they like it. That's the, the fucking festival organizers make moolah. So that's why they do it, you know? And then and then I personally think I personally think that maybe there is like an anthropological reason here. There's something about the festival as being a place where people are 
allowed to express certain things that you're not allowed to express within the city, right? The city is the place for commerce and for um, for the, the, the flow of commodities and services, and it's where capital lives. The streets transport people to their jobs and to venues so that they can consume, whereas a music festival, whether or not it does or to what degree it does, is it acts as like a fucking release, right? A site where you can kind of transgress a little bit. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why it takes place. Or at least that's that's kind of a, a fantasy of what it's supposed to be. Even though most of it's like bland hedonism, um, it's supposed to be a place where you can go and get away, right? Where you can have a mini escape, where you can have a trip, so to speak. And so I think a lot of them are kind of trying to do the Woodstock thing and like live in the lore of that. And so I think that's another reason why it has to be outside of the city because they want it to be something that they want the spectacle of it. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. And, and my retort would simply be, um, Stop look, that. If, if, the hip, <laughs> if, if the hippies want to have carnival out in the desert, yeah, like just go hire a couple DJs and just go, you know, fuck each other and spread your STDs and, and stuff on your own. Don't make all the good musicians go out there and suffer to entertain you when you're not paying attention <laughs> because you're so high. Yeah. Right. Just don't don't make that the, the good music festival. Just get a couple DJs. All you really wanted is some DJ to play some club beats so you can, you know, do some ecstasy and like fuck seven people. Like that's fine. Like you do you, right? But don't don't make all the good bands go out there to entertain you. Don't yeah. do that. Yeah, and I mean, if we really want to transgress, why not bring transgression into the city? I mean, that's what it would, that would be better, right? Like, obviously, the way that it's devised now is devised to try to, like, maintain boundaries between order and chaos, supposedly, in theory, even though it's not even really good chaos. But, like, you know what would be really cool is bring the chaos into the city, and then you would have a sort of, like, urban exploration vibe where it's like a recomposition of spaces that are typically used for one thing that then get a sort of like reinscription of meaning that is like overlaid them you know even if just for a moment then you have like a I know the term is associated with a guy who is controversial but you get like a temporary autonomous zone right so um yeah there's some some yeah I mean I an example of how that can work well is, do you know the um, the kind of avant-garde jazz musician, John Zorn? Oh, yeah. He, he was the musician in residence um, or artist in residence for the festival. And so he took up one of the uh, one of the, the music venues out here, one of the big ones. Mm. And the whole weekend was just he and his various uh, groups that he either plays in and or composes for just went back to back all day, all evening um, in this one place. And it was so awesome. And he's, you know, the whole like New York avant-garde scene, um, he's like a huge part of that, right? So all these people from New York were down and you you get to like talk to people who are not from the area. And Mm. so there's there's that sort of like really interesting dynamic going on with a bunch of avant-garde people coming down and hanging out. And the coolest thing was, for some reason, this festival skews older. Part of that, I guess, is just, I don't I don't even know. I'm sure there's there's a, an easy explanation. But given that there's so much avant-garde music, it's weird that mm. it skews that way. You would think avant-garde music, okay, this is going to skew like 20s, early 30s, you know, hipsters, pre-professionals, whatever. Um, but it skews really old. And so 
you go to this this show with like John Zorn playing screaming metal jazz <laughs> avant noise John Cage shit, right? I'm like half the audience is, is 60 and up. And you're just like, what the fuck is going on here? How is this a thing? And I guess it's just all the hippies from the 70s who didn't become, like didn't sell their souls. Mm. Like they just, they kept it up the whole time and they're still around. And so they all like, there's only, there's only like 2000 of those people left in the country, but they all came to this one <laughs> festival because yeah, John yeah. Zorn was there. Yeah, exactly. That, that was, that was my hypothesis based upon very little information. But that's, that's a really cool dynamic. That doesn't quite yeah. have the, um, temporary autonomous zone, carnival, transgression thing going on. But there's a degree to which it it throws it throws things throw things out of whack a little bit in ways that can be pretty interesting. So I think you can accomplish at least bits and pieces of that dynamic here. Well, but maybe it does. That's kind of what I mean with like the bland hedonism. I don't think that just going crazy outwardly is somehow more free than a sort of like rational deconstruction of the form you know that can be more transgressive right like it at, at like mm-hmm. a level of like a different amplitude right instead of big and noisy and chaotic and screaming right it's more like it's deep and meditative and intentional and that might even be more transgressive um than i mean it's certainly more transgressive than Lollapalooza or like fucking south by southwest or or even burning man like that shit's just so commodified and commercialized especially because of the advent of social media and everyone just trying to emulate what everybody else does and looks like and how they all stand and get everyone in the same outfits like that shit's just so bland like it's not even good hedonism bruno it's like we need some fucking real pagan rituals like let's get midsomar on this shit you know What was the Nick Cage movie with the bees? Wicker Man. The original is great. <laughs> the original. But. Yeah, the original Wicker Man. Yeah, I, I actually – I auditioned for a mockumentary. I was like 20 years old. It was a mockumentary that was going to go to Burning Man. And I'd never heard of Burning Man. So this is like 15 years ago plus now, right? So it was like – like I'd never heard of Burning Man. And and then I had to do a little research while I was going through the audition process. And I was like, oh my God, this place sounds fucking crazy. And of course I was 20. So I wasn't even like, I didn't have any sort of like <laughs> deep rational. I just thought that this was like a mad place where a bunch of like fucking like electronic ravers went or something like that. That was like my impression of it at the time. Um, and it's only been like what the last like 10 years or something like that, where it's become a thing that's cool now. Like it wasn't cool then. Like everything's fucking cool now. Whereas like when you take over a space and you're doing like strange avant-garde jazz, it's not cool. Not in the sense of like social media cool. It's um, it's more than that. It's like it's cool in like a, a deep sense and like a philosophical sense and like the strongest sense of the word. It's cool because it's doing something unique and interesting. So that's the kind of shit that we need more of. Yeah, and that's all contextual, right? I mean, even transgression itself, no, no act is inherently transgressive. It's all about the, the context in which the act is performed. So that's going to change. And things, are, things that are transgressive one moment very quickly are going to become normalized and uh, stultified in the next. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I even wonder if, if we – like if the, the intensity of transgression itself – gets lost when we sort of valorize the rebel, right? Like like Kanye West is a rebel because he like 
what he designs his own shoes but then he sells them for a fucking thousand dollars so is that really transgressive you know what i mean like even the idea of transgression itself has been co-opted to be to be something that's hip or cool right so it's like even even transgression itself has to shift how it transgresses and maybe transgression doesn't have to always be big and bold and dada you know it doesn't have to be fucking dada you don't have to go up there and and totally make a show of it maybe it can be something like a different amplitude, like I said earlier, something else that can be understated. And so one of one of my favorite fucking music experiences ever, you were just talking about, you know, this experience that you just had. I saw Richard Youngs, who's this British experimental musician. I saw him at a two-day residency in a flat in Scotland, in Glasgow, Scotland. And it was like, it was like BYOB. Uh, you bought a ticket for two days and he has all these like makeshift instruments that he uses. And literally it was like 40 people in a flat just sitting around vibing to crazy experimental music, drinking 40s, you know, like drinking 40s and, <laughs> and cans of beer. And then like he took a break and then everyone just talks and hangs out. It was like the crazy. It was like one of the coolest fucking concert. Is that even a concert? But just experiences ever. And I don't know. Like, that's the kind of shit that to me has much deeper and, and kind of more interesting resonances than like going out in the desert and getting off your face. And um, I don't know. Did you, yeah, it, that shit was crazy for me. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it does seem like in some sense, uh, the truly transgressive thing isn't something you're really going to know is such in the moment. Mm. Um, it can't really be predictable, right? It mm. only has to be after the fact that it becomes this important like moment in the dialectic or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, it, yeah, it's not going to be the thing that you think it is in the moment, which is, seems appropriate, right? Yeah, totally. You got very much, uh, I mean, to use our, the name of our podcast, like what did Hegel say? Like, uh, it's only the owl of Minerva flies after dusk. Like you only really know, um, the state of things, uh, after they've already occurred. It's the kind of thing that's not predictable. Well, but we're we're at dawn, bro. So we can try to we can try to to sketch these things out ahead of time, right? We're trying. Yeah. yeah that, <laughs> exactly. Fail again, fail better. That's it. That's it. Um, cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the uh, shitty minute there, and let's get into this main segment. Yeah, dude. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so this essay by Liam Bright, um, the reason that it, it drew a lot of attention, I think, is because well, one, because he's got a big um, kind of profile and he posts a lot of like funny stuff, but also just really thought provoking things on the Twitter sphere. And, um, this is one of the more, like, I, like one of the more sustained pieces, like that isn't an academic article that he also publishes, right? He's a, you know, a professional philosopher. So, um, this is one of like the, the, the bigger, like sustained pieces, um, uh, of like blog writing that I've seen of his that, that got this much attention. I don't know if that's true or if that's just my limitation, but um, I think I think partly because the issue of liberalism that he that he um, discusses is one that kind of bears on everyone, especially the idea that even a lot of people who might see themselves as being on the left and outside of the liberal matrix, he sort of says, "Well, maybe just a lot of you are just left liberals," and he's like, "That's not necessarily a bad thing." Um, he's like, yeah. he's like, but he kind of broadens the sphere out. And so I think maybe a lot of people felt targeted. And then I think even a lot of people who maybe then would agree with him more about some of his more radical 
proposals that he doesn't really flesh out exactly what they are, but he kind of like broadly sketches them. I think a lot of them are like, yes, 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 this is really good for how you broadened that circle out. And it kind of gives a better diagnosis of the scope of liberalism and therefore its stranglehold. Um, which is also tied to kind of like the history of its ideological development, which then has kind of, um, you know, appropriate, which more people have kind of um, taken on board. So I think it has probably something to do with that. Do you think that's maybe why it kind of got the attention that it, it's gotten? Yeah, I mean, I haven't really. Uh, I know that I I sent this to you and said, hey, why don't we talk about it? Um, but I, I didn't follow any of the the discourse around it because I just hadn't had time over the last you know week or so. Mm. So I'm not really sure 100 what the the general tenor of the reaction was to it. And I didn't even know about the responses that you talked about. So I just yeah. saved a couple of those that that looked interesting. So unfortunately, I can't speak to those in this discussion. Um, but I do wonder. So when I was when I was reading that point about whether or not a lot of people that are on the left who use the, the term liberal as kind of a, uh, in, in like a mocking tone, um, for people who were like centrists, basically. Um, I wonder, and he, he points to like, you know, Bernie Sanders and, and Jeremy Corbyn and points out that, you know, there's their, and, and their policy proposals, um, never mind what they actually say their, uh, like political orientation is, they are manifestly, you know, um, left liberals. There's no, there isn't really debate about that. Like that's just what they are. Um, yeah. And that's true. That's 100% true. Um, I, I do wonder though, that it seems to me, and I, maybe I would fall into this camp. There's a, there's a strong sense in which I don't think this is 100% true, but there's, there's something important about the recognition that the, the welfare state in the United States was never really even like started, <laughs> it was kind of started and then almost immediately, um, like had its knees cut out from under it. Right. And it's not necessarily true in a lot of places in Europe. Right. I don't think any place in Europe has like a fully functioning welfare state. Um, probably the Nordic countries are the, are the most advanced in that realm. Right. But even they've had, uh, strong moments of, of reaction against, against that project. And America is probably the least developed welfare state amongst, mm. you know, like wealthy democracies, right? And so there's some sense in which, you know, I wouldn't advocate like a like a like a super strong kind of uh, historical dialecticism here, but there does seem to be something about like maybe you have to complete the welfare state to some degree before you can transcend it, <laughs> kind mm. of a thing. Um, not just because like this is the way the history goes, nothing you can do about it, but maybe just something about social psychology that says like people have to understand and have evidence that that strong centralized government can work in certain respects. And when they have that, they're more comfortable with continuing that project down into a different uh, like transformative road or whatever. And there's something I think really important about looking at America and seeing that um, certain generations of people who will move more towards the left liberal spectrum have things like the New Deal and Medicare and various other civil rights era, so big social projects. They can hang their head on and say, look, this was a huge success. And the kind of thing that motivates me and animates me to subscribe to this political ideology and uh, continue to vote for candidates who also subscribe to it or whatever, right? 
And we just don't have that anymore for the most part, right? Mm. Like there's just, what does anybody um, that's younger than like 50 have to say, oh, I can hang my hat on and say, this was a great political project that motivates me to continue to support whichever party it was that was, um, uh, that like performed it or created it. There just isn't like, what, what the fuck did Clinton and Obama and now Biden do like, what do you have to hang your head on the fucking yeah. affordable care act? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, so there's something about you could, you could advocate for left liberal positions, something like, I don't know, Medicare for all or, or whatever. And, um, and, and think of that as being a bridge towards something further left than left liberal, something non-liberal, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I, I wonder, um, I mean, so there's even a lot of literature out there about how the construction of the welfare state itself was was almost an entrenchment of the liberal project. This is something that Martin Konings traces in his book um, on American finance, where he talks about how the New Deal proposals actually helped to expand the reach of financialization by incorporating more and more people under the kind of remit of homeownership. And so that actually it was an intensification of um, a sort of centralized form of um, of liberal capitalist expansion, right? And I've seen, I think it's Barry Eichengrain who's talked about like the Marshall Plan, for example, with the development of, of post-World War II Western Europe being financed by the United States as being a, a massive project of um, uh, kind of like redevelopment, but according to the financial logics of, um, you know, American hegemonic empirical financialization. So I, I actually don't trace like neoliberalism to the seventies and the Volcker shocks and the oil crisis and the collapse of, of, uh, you know, the gold standard and stuff like that. I'm much more inclined to look at, um, earlier in the 20th century, which means then that to me that the welfare state is actually constitutively uh, an intensification of liberal capitalism. Um, and I really like, I personally, so 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 Liam focuses on like the Rawlsian genealogy. I'm very partial to the genealogy of liberalism that Michelle Ferrer charts um, where where Fair Fair talks about the development of a certain type of moral anthropology um, uh, in 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 liberalism, um, which relates to you know Fair his he was Deleuze's student and then he translates Foucault's uh, um, lectures, so he talks a lot about governmentality. But for him, um, let me just find find this here. He talks about that. Um, in like the 17th and 18th century, well, really 16th starts in like the 16th century for him, which I think fits with with what Liam traces his genealogy too, with like, you know, the um, civil wars in England and then the kind of religious wars in Europe. For, for Ferrer, what you see that takes place is you get a shift from what he calls like the um, Augustinian 
moral anthropology, which is that like um, uh, that like we are bad, but like um, so people can't govern themselves and they need to be governed because there's a bad propensity, but they can be governed. Right. So the Augustinian condition is that like people live in perpetual danger, but it comes from the outside. Um, and then we have accomplice, accomplices within us, the senses, but we also have good in us that can master or escape or purify ourselves, right? Um, so then, um, but then with Augustine, you know, things kind of change that you get like this attack on free will. Um, there is no more free will. Um, you know, like even even like uh, Fair talks about how Augustine talks about like the erection of the penis is something that like happens like without our desires. So there's like something just like inherently bad within us, right? Um, so the only thing that can change us is like charity or grace or whatever. Um, but um, mm -hmm. this kind of changes in the 17th and 18th century. This is going to be like a long-winded thing, by the way, because this is his whole genealogy here. Um, he says it changes in like the 17th and 18th century which where this view becomes secularized, where the feudal lords, they receive the given, which is the land from God, and then they offer their loyalty. And this sort of Christianizes the aristocracy, right? So they're the ones who are kind of like the, the beholders, if you will, of God's charity. Um, and then so because of this, uh, commercial and economic relations are affected too. greed is transformed. Um, and then there's a need to legitimize economic relations. Um, which comes through the maximization of happiness through exchange because it's something that's measurable, right? And so then you need a system of just or fair exchange. So there's a slow rehabilitation of the notion of exchange. Um, but okay, yeah, so the, the, the liberal condition for him starts in like the late 16th, 17th century, what he calls like the development of the Baroque era, the nation state, the Westphalian order. So he says, kingdoms now maximize their power, their force, and their wealth, but they need to mobilize populations as much as possible to make one's nation stronger against the others. And this is where he says the notion of interest takes center stage. So people are subject to violent and fickle passions. So how to make them more obedient and productive because you can't rely on them. So he talks about their raison d'etat becomes crucial here. Passions are selfish, but they're calculated and they we start to think more in long term. So the sovereign can control the interests and can stimulate, I'm sorry, and can simulate the calculations of the can stimulate the calculations of the interests in the governed and he says and this primarily takes place one through the management of the market and the management of the family and that takes place through the rule of law and then of course through and this kind of maps onto what Liam was talking about like the division between public reason and private conscience um, and so mm -hmm. what you have then is the state as being in control of creating a market managing a market um, and the rules around which the market can flourish, but also creating the conditions whereby that private conscience can flourish, which is, of course, through the nuclear family, the patriarchal nuclear family. So that's why you get it's just uh, it's so important for it to be like a male propertied uh, a family leader who then is the one who disseminates and creates the next generation through social reproduction of interested individuals who can then go to market, which itself is being regulated and governed by the state um, to maximize the national wealth of the individuals in the private sphere. But more importantly, that'll translate into the public sphere, which will then enrich the nations so that they can mobilize their activities of empire, right? So like that's kind of what he talks about is like the genealogy of liberalism. And then he thinks that this changes 
um, with like, you know, the emergence of kind of critiques that come from like, uh, he calls it a romantic critique, which can come from either the left or the right. The right is more nostalgic. The left is like pre-Marxist socialists. Um, and then you have the socialist critique and the socialist critique says, yeah, we are interested, but the interests are class interests and they're historical. So, uh, so I know I'm, I'm being long winded here, but this genealogy, I just find to be so interesting. Um, so I'll, I'll just wrap it up real quickly here. So you get these critiques, then the romantic critique, you get the socialist critique. So the socialist critique says, yes, we are interested, but interests are class interests and are historical. Um, but Ferris says, you know, this is still actually working within the liberal condition, but it's a transformation of the liberal condition. Um, and then of course you have feminist critiques at this time as well. But here's the thing that's interesting that relates to like, um, the, the nanny state or the welfare state. So one of the liberal critiques of the nanny state is that it emasculates men by making them reliant. So this is what then challenges or, or affects, or is like an assault on, um, the family right? Uh, or, or the nuclear family at this point, that the nanny state actually takes away the capacities of these individuals from being able to serve their own self-interests by giving too much power to the nanny state. So what you get then is an emergence of like this kind of like neoliberal resurgence that takes place that wants to remove the nanny state, um, which has become like a um, it's almost like a drug that people have gotten addicted to. And you hear this in the rhetoric in the 90s of uh, in Germany, the German Chancellor Schroeder at the time. Uh, you get this with Bill Clinton in particular, who talks about how we need to like wean people off of their reliance on the nanny state. Right. And it's almost like a therapeutic rhetoric that they use. Like literally Bill Clinton talks about that. It's like getting people to to find themselves again. Right. So there's a nostalgic project that is already inherent in like the neoliberal project. Right. Which is like a desire to get back to a perceived um, order that took place under under liberalism. Um, but the problem is, at least for fair, is that the moral anthropology has changed at this time because individual subjects aren't entrepreneurs of the self as like the Chicago school people would want to make you think, but they're actually people who are now concerned with maintaining their social reputation or what he calls their rating. So states are concerned at this point with maintaining their bond rating. Corporations are concerned with maintaining their corporate valuation. And individuals become more and more concerned with like the psychic value that they can derive, which he talks about in relationship to Irving Fisher. Um, but it's more about like the psychic income, right? The sort of like maximization, if you will, of their psychic value, um, which is like uh, is self-esteem. And then he goes on and he talks about like that there's actually a moral anthropology that fits to this. And he talks about like post-Freudian ego psychology that's all about like self-esteem, like individualism or whatever that has become part and parcel that kind of like leverages this tendency towards uh, self-esteem pursuits. And he talks about Karen Horney as being like emblematic of this, who also influenced Eric Fromm, who of course is like a left Freudian Marxist. So um, I, I just think that when you think about like the idea of transition out of it, I just think that that like the roots of liberalism go so deep that even the kind of like leftist projects, the, the welfarist projects, or even kind of like sometimes the more radical projects, they're still so attached to the liberal project. I, I don't even know that you can speak about that kind of like transition through the nanny state because it seems to just re-entrench that tendency and transform the liberal project into something else so that now when we have this like neo-feudal oligopoly that it's still kind of like in the legacy of liberalism and the choices for escape are beyond like non-reformist reforms. I know that's kind of pessimistic, but that's kind of what I think. Yeah. So there's a lot there and I, I can't know. respond to all I of it. I know. I'm sorry. I, the, I went off on one. The, the, the key for me then would be 
I think it's it's, it's not, notable that a lot of the a lot of the sort of social anthropologists who think this way are non-Americans, yeah, because um, they've seen a much more developed welfare state be co-opted. Mm. Um, whereas I think my my <laughs> very oversimplified retort would simply be, look, if if the welfare state was that entrenched in not just liberalism, but liberal capitalism, which is a big part of my discussion here is that those, those two terms are not coextensive necessarily, although they're deeply intertwined uh, historically. Um, if, if it was so entrenched in liberal capitalism, then why the fuck did it need to be murdered in the United States <laughs> um, by capitalists? So I think that mm. a lot of the sort of what we call neoliberal revolution, which I take your point, I don't think its origin is purely like in the 70s. Um, and I do think that the the welfare state push being a, a liberal project um, it is both going to be partially pro and partially anti-capitalist. It's, it's very much on the border between the two. And so can go either way, depending upon the social context and the actors involved. Um, I think that's why the welfare state sort of push and revolution in the 20th century went all sorts of different ways in different places and ended up being, I think, handicapped and basically everywhere that it was because of the ubiquity and power of, of capitalism. But I think it went to different lengths in different places, basically given the um, the power that capitalists held in that society, right, over time. So I, I, if, I, I can't take this strong claim that the welfarist project is a purely liberal capitalist thing and entrenches financialization when, if that was the case, it, then it wouldn't need to be murdered in the United States like it has. So you wouldn't need Clinton to become the liberal Reagan if that was the case. So... I take the point that it's 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 certainly not the case that the that the sort of welfare revolution was the like an anti-liberal project like that's that's totally out of bounds right yeah. but I also think that that does not mean that it was the um, purely like re-entrenchment or further entrenchment of liberal capitalism it's complicated I think that there was several different forces at play there and you need to have that sort of complex dynamism to explain how the welfare state project ended up in, in such different places um, in different countries at different times. So that's, I mean, that's way too broad of yeah. a brush to paint anything, but I think it's, it's, it's fairly complicated. And I guess for me, I mean, history is not my thing. So I'm speaking out of, out of like um, out of bounds here, but there's some sense in which the big picture here is like, what is a society for? Like who the, the like OG liberals, right. Um, take like uh, Liam Bright's um, idea that, well, the, the basic idea is like the, the original liberals are trying to think about the best way to organize society to knowing that the aristocrats are like the, the parasites on society. <laughs> right. We got to organize it in such a way that everyone else here can actually make do or whatever. Um, there's some, and, and a noted pre-liberal is Hobbes, right? And I think in many ways, Hobbes is like the enemy, but also something really important Hobbes did was think about what's the function of society. <laughs> mm. And I think at the very least, Hobbes is probably right that there's something about how do we, how do we cooperate in a way that's stable over time and that reproduces itself in a way that's stable over time. 
Um, that is like, I think, a pretty fundamental question about the function of society, like what society is for. Now, Hobbes had an extremely narrow way of thinking about that and his answer to that, or even more, unfortunately, narrow. Um, but that seems like a, a pretty important way to think about it. And so I don't think that the, given that Hobbes is a kind of a pre-liberal, right? That doesn't mean that liberalism is the only social theory that tries to answer that question. But it's like, that's that's probably the main question for for liberalism, is how do you organize society in a way that's, that's stable um, over time? Hmm. Um, and because that can go in several different directions, uh, that can that can end up in a, a pretty authoritarian way, like it does in Hobbes, right? Or it can end up, I think, in a in a pretty non-authoritarian way, like maybe some form of like democratic egalitarianism. And so I think there are very different strands in liberalism of how to answer that question. Um, such, and I've talked about in the podcast before that you have, you know, something like a Hobbes is on, you know, one side maybe, uh, and some of the empiricists who follow in that vein. And then you have like the, I think somewhat more kind of rationalist strain of thinking about this much more of an inflated, I wouldn't use it from inflated, but robust conception of, of human psychology and social psychology, probably ending up somewhere like in like a Hegelian notion of the point of society is for political co-determination and social uh, co-determination uh, amongst persons such that like you can't even find liberal autonomy except in uh various social roles that you, upon reflection, affirm yourself in. And that's a very different notion of autonomy than you would think, than like the neoliberal version of autonomy, which is purely about private property um, and self-expression through private property and whatever, right? So all those things are within liberalism. Like Hegel himself is a liberal who's critiquing liberalism, <laughs> right? Um, and the only way to make sense of that is to have a very broad sense of what the liberal project is such that I would I would even venture to say that like maybe in some sense Marxism is like a liberal project yeah. that's a heavy critique of liberalism at the same time. And I think you would agree with that in the sense yeah. of like there's a lot of liberal notions in Marxism we'd probably wanna we'd probably want to critique, right? Yeah, I think like one in particular is I still think something that that Liam doesn't get to is the notion of like negative versus positive freedom, right? And I think that one of the problems with Marxism is that it is still too wedded to the sort of like French revolutionary ideas that are rooted in like a negative conception of liberty. But now what Liam does talk about is he does talk about how it would be great to have a society that is consciously thinking about what the good would be, which then we might say is a, a sort of shift from just a negative conception of liberty to a positive conception of liberty. And so maybe there's something important about moving away from discourses on purely negative freedom, which seems to me to be one of the also the hallmarks of, of liberalism that I think um, infects Marx, um, Marx's project and a lot of Marxist thought, especially when you look at Marxist thinkers when they talk about like the universal emancipa uh, emancipation of the proletariat. They're not speaking in terms of like positive liberty, like consciously thinking about what the good might be because they're afraid of utopianism. So they oftentimes veer away from that stuff to the to the detriment, I think, of their project, which actually sort of entraps them into a sort of like liberal project. And this is what a lot of like um, kind of like conservative commentators have critiqued Marxism for, particularly Walter Lippmann actually critiques Marxism for this, right? Um, 
but you get a lot of people or like the sort of like romantic, like the Eugene McCarraher types, um, mm-hmm. like they kind of critique Marxism for this as well, for not having a, a sort of like positive metaphysics, we might say. Um, it's sort of like wallows in the nihilism, right? And so I also want to be careful that I don't fall into a sort of like romantic critique, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, maybe there's stuff that we can learn from there that would allow us to to reconceive of what a state might be, because I think that the nation state as so devised historically and conceptually is part and parcel related to the project of liberalism to such an extent that we can't even think of a state outside of the raison d'etat, which is rooted in um, a sort of like Benthamite desire to maximize interests by the management of the market and the maintenance of the rule of law and therefore the protection of private property and the nuclear family. And then also of like a social contract in a Rousseauian sense. Like, so to me, the nation state is trapped within that matrix. And so we would even need to completely reconceive of what a state itself might be, right? What a nation state might be. Maybe it's not a nation state. I mean, Liam talks about like open borders as a possibility of it, which would then sort of totally confound what a nation even is, right? So uh, I think now we're talking about like different forms of social ensemble that are beyond the, the conceptions that we are inundated with that the liberal tradition has passed down to us. So, so here's a crazy claim. Um, and, I, and I agree with you about this. Uh, the the fact that there's there's these notions of uh, negative liberty kind of overtaking positive liberty in and kind of Marxism. There's this, there's a, a sense, at least in this respect, in which Hegel is more of a uh, non like Marx is more of a liberal than Hegel, <laughs> um, yeah. which is the opposite of like the the general received wisdom, of course, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Hegel is someone who praises uh, private property and capitalism and stuff like that. Although I think the context in which he does that is very different than than what people think. Um, so I don't need to go in that here. But yeah. I would say also, you're talking about the uh, raison d'etat, and you kind of lumped in the Benthamite version of it. Right, utilitarian kind of version of it, yeah. with like a Rousseau social social contract thing. Yeah. And while those are both liberal parts of the liberal project, I agree with that. I think they're pretty are pretty opposed in yes. certain ways. And so this is where I have this like strong Rousseau Kant Hegel line is very different in the way it conceives the nature of the human and the function of society, the purpose of society, than a, a Benthamite you know calculating kind of utilitarian uh, government house thing. And I think that those are pretty similar. It's it's not just those two lines, but you can kind of get a good picture of the two different sides of liberalism by thinking about those two different lines of thought, mm. which were opposed all throughout modern history, right? They were arguing against each That's other. That's right. With some shit with some shared, some shared um claims and beliefs, right? Of course, it's part of the liberal project. But they're they're pretty starkly opposed in a lot of areas. And that I think goes to I mean, what do you think the point of the welfare state is? Is it the Benthamite version about um, like inf- using private property to enfranchise this sense that the, the point of a society is to maximize people's self-interest or whatever, or satisfaction of their preferences or whatever? Or do you think there's something about the welfare state that enhances political co-determination between persons, right? Which is very different, I think. One is outcome-oriented and one is process-oriented to start. Right. And then Mm -hmm. it goes on to many differences from there. And that, to me, tells you a lot about the nature of the welfare state in that society. Um, And I agree that 
in most existing welfare states, it's it, they function more so in the Benthamite way. Okay, yeah. And that's the problem with them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? They shouldn't function like that and they need not function like that. And I think people who are clear-eyed about what a better welfare state would look like um, see it as a kind of political co-determination or yeah. an instance of, of forming that. I mean, think about, we've talked about several times in this podcast, when Bernie talks about um, Medicare for all and stuff like that. He always couches it. I mean, it's it's rhetoric, right? But he's, he couches it in this like, what would you do for the person next to you who you don't mm. know? Yeah, it's like a mutualism. Right, and that's like, yeah, yeah. It, there, there's a lot going on there and I wouldn't subscribe to all of it, right? But the reason that was so shocking when Bernie said it is because, not because like the idea of the welfare state is totally alien to Americans. It's not totally alien. Like even old conservatives love fucking Medicare, right? But the way that Bernie couched it was in a very different vision of what society is supposed to be, right? He was couching it in a sense of like social equality and co-determination is what's important in society. And our welfarist proposals are meant to be like the first steps towards realizing that vision and not, oh, we need to have um, the way the welfare state's thought of by most you know, American pundits and stuff, which is if they even think it's worthwhile, it's because in some sense, like transfer payments are necessary to like maximize utility or whatever, right? Which is it, I mean, I wish we could maximize more utility compared to what we have, but that's just not the vision of society that I would subscribe to. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a lot there and it's more complex than I'm, than the way that I'm, I'm like, you know, painting it here. Mm. But I think there's, there's something about those two lines of thinking that coexist in ways that I don't think everyone always realizes that there's there's different ways of thinking about some of the same ideas. Yeah, so maybe then what my gripe is and that genealogy that I painted earlier, maybe that's the kind of like leaning heavily into the Benthamite um, influences. Yeah. yeah. And, and then I think then what I would maybe wonder is, is because I don't think you can think of the welfare state now apart from capitalism, right? I think that the state as historically constructed um, is uh, in, in, in is constitutively related to this thing that we call capital, right? The capitalist mode of production, you know? Um, sure, yeah. And, and, and even the capitalist mode of reason and rationality, right? So... So then what I wonder is, is this really does then require a sort of, and like Liam does talk about this in the article. He says like, listen, I don't really know exactly where this would go. I'm just saying that there needs to be alternatives, right? <laughs> like, um, mm-hmm. where does he say that at, at? Yeah, he's like right here. He talks about like, um, oh, what does he say? Yeah, I don't have time to go into what the alternative is here. I just state that I think one is needed, right? This is when he's talking about like, he says, um, that there maybe even could be like consensus-based decision-making procedures, freedom of movement in a way that ultimately also speaks against the nation state and border controls. And then he says, I don't have time to go into what I think the alternative would be here, just that to state that I think one is needed. And I think the thing that's really interesting is if that for him is anti-liberal, like is is like qualitatively non-liberal, then in that sense, yeah, like, 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 that means then that we have to totally rethink of what the nation state is, what borders are, what democracy is. Because the thing that we say 
is democracy at the moment, representative democracy, um, maybe pales in comparison to certain forms of radical democracy. Or he talks about like consensus-based decision-making procedures, right? Like those sorts of things would transform it. And then I would say, and also this means then that what we need to have is like different understandings of socioeconomic relations that aren't rooted in um, rational decision-making for the purpose of pleasure-seeking via production and consumption, right? So you talk mm -hmm. about like participatory economics, you know, it's something that, um, was it Michael Albert that wrote like, uh, what is it, Paracon? Um, you know, participatory economics or something J.K. Gibson Graham writes about where they write about, you know, the kind of like diverse economies and community banking and those sorts of things start to then come into like the proposal side, right? Or or sovereign wealth funds or social wealth funds, um, you know, stuff that like Matt Brunig has, has talked about, um, and uh, many others. Um, but like those sorts of things start to come in at the level of proposal. But those sorts of things also literally change the entire fabric of of kind of the, the groupings of people. I hesitate to even use the word state because I'm not sure that we can even use the word state anymore, right? Like I think we need to start thinking outside of even what the state is at the moment. Um, and so then you start thinking about what is, does that mean local economies? And then sure, like anarchists are all happy about that. But then how does that work in an age that emerging out of the fucking ashes of empire, uh, if that would be the way that it would happen? How would that even, even take hold? Is it just like finding those, this is very much maybe then going into like Eric Olin Wright's work, right? Where it's like, um, if you're actually going to transform it, it is the kind of like non-reformist reforms. It is like finding those spaces where you can have a co-op and where you can institute a basic income and where you can have community banking and you have consensus-based decision-making here and then it expands outward and maybe it erodes um, by latching onto, but it erodes the, the 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 kind of like larger hegemonic tendencies of liberal capitalism. I just can't think of liberalism apart from capitalism. I know you're 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 able to like separate them conceptually. I'm not, I just I can't in my mind. So I mean, yeah. one one existed before the other. <laughs> Did it? I mean, at least conceptually, yeah. Like people, the liberal OG liberals were talking about liberal social theory and political theory. Before there was, I mean, maybe nascent capitalism was around. I, my history is not the strongest point here, but I, I totally agree that they're they're historically incredibly intertwined. And liberal capitalism is is a name for a certain social, political, and economic order that's completely dominant, right? Uh, so I don't think in any way that you could like historically divorce liberalism from capitalism. I do think there are strains of liberalism that are anti-capitalist. Um, that's I think uncontestably true. Um, we just talked about, I mean, this isn't even a good example of it, but like Marxism is in, in some sense within like the Enlightenment <laughs> projects, right? But it's very anti-capitalist. Oh, no. Did you just say that Marxism is uh, anti-capitalist liberalism? <laughs> People no, are, it's not. Um, no, no, no. I know. That, I mean, that, naming it that way would, would sound stupid, right? But yeah. there's a sense in which it's part of the liberal tradition. Yeah. Even it's, it's very critical I'm of okay with that. Right? I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. But even, but even like there's lots of left liberals that are anti-capitalist, um, uh, that are liberals. They have, they have liberal reasons, liberal social theory reasons for rejecting capitalism. Um, there's a very strong strain of that. So, uh, I do think it's not the dominant strain in liberalism, certainly. Right. 
But it is a strain of it. And I think that the best forms of liberalism are anti-capitalist for sure. I just like noted the Rousseau, Kant, Hegel line, um, all of whom were in some sense pro-capitalist, but I think it's complicated how that actually works in practice. Um, that said, that's a complex historical thing. I don't have a whole yeah. lot of bones to pick about how the history actually works out. But I will say, so I wanted to talk for a minute before we move on to the next thing here uh, about the two reasons that Liam presents for rejecting liberalism. Okay. And he's kind of quick about it, but I think they're really interesting. And I have a lot more to say about one than the other, because the other one I'm just completely torn on. I don't know what to say about it. <laughs> uh, the first one, which I don't have much to say about, although I'm curious if you do, he says, I do not believe that anything like the public reason, private conscience um, dichotomy can be made to work. I think the state has to, in fact, take a side on contentious issues. There is no neutral position or viable overlapping consensus or anything of the sort. Um, I'm super torn on this because I totally agree with his criticisms of this. And yet part of me is still like there has to be <laughs> a separation. Some, <laughs> there has to be some use for the distinction yeah. in practice and the idea of the state having no neutral ground. Um, ah, man, I just, <laughs> I feel like, I mean, this is not a good example of, of like, a, like a contrary to this claim, but like we're seeing right now the fruits of um, there being no neutral ground for like public reason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and I agree with all the criticisms of it. I got no bones to pick with that, but. I don't know. I, I want to talk more about the second one, but if you have anything to say about the first one, I'm curious what you think. I don't know either. Um, I kind of want to know. I think I need to know a little bit more what he has in mind of what the other side of this bifurcation looks like. Right. So mm -hmm. he kind of talks about it. This is this is in the section where he talks about consensus based decision making. So is he then kind of Rather than a duality, he's talking about like almost like a monistic political sphere, like like maybe like instead of thinking it like I, in my mind, I'm just thinking analogously. So you have like uh, management and then you have like, uh, uh, you know, like I'm thinking of a corporate structure. You've got like management at the moment. Well, fuck right now. You've got like fucking shareholders and then you've got uh, stakeholders. Right. But in a co-op, what you have is you still have hierarchy. But it's functional hierarchy, right, rather than like ontological hierarchy, whereas the split that he's talking about – and I know he's talking about the state, not a corporation, but just bear with me while I'm trying to figure this out. He's talking about like an, an, like an ontological split, right, that there is like this like this, this absolute ontological split in liberalism between the public sphere of reason and the private, private sphere of activity and self-interest. And so then what I wonder is like the co-op model, would that not give us something that at least gives us um, something that would be maybe more approximate to to what this post bifurcated um, uh, political sphere could look like where you still have hierarchy. So decisions can still get made, but they're not neutral because everyone's a participant in it. And then that would relate to the consensus based decision making that he talks about. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm not really sure how that's connected to the this the specific kind of public-private dichotomy that's being used here. I took this more as a um, conceptually, we can't build public stru government structures based on the idea 
that there's some shared space that everyone agrees on or has some consensus on, and then the rest of it is contestable, mm. right? Yeah. Um, so, and, and I, I would certainly agree that the, the way that's done in in like the main mainstream of liberalism is is very problematic for all the reasons you can rehearse, right? But there, there seems to me there has to be some built-in sense that there is there are areas that like one's conception of the good is their own in a sense and um there can be like legitimate disagreement over those things i'm not saying he's like uh liam's being contrary to that because that would be pretty authoritarian to say like no there's no area uh, of private conscience or whatever um but yeah i, I the more has to be said about that for me to have any sort of sense of of, of where to go with it I, i'm not really sure mm. Okay. Um, what about the second point that you said you were had more thoughts on? Yeah. The second one is he says, I think this political vision is self-undermining, referring to liberalism. The notion of private property used to undergird the notions of self-governance and a private sphere, as well as the as well as ground the activities of the rational and thrifty subject in the market, contains within itself the seeds of the destruction of the liberal order. I mean, 100% agree. Uh, that's the notion of private property used in liberal capitalism is the problem. Like I 100% agree with that. And I would just say that's not necessarily like there are strains of anti-private property thinking within liberalism, right? Um, to think of self-governance as manifested entirely in private property is the problem, right? And if the notion of private sphere means I do what I want with my shit, right? Never don't, don't talk to me about how I got that shit in the first place, right? Um, that's the problem. Yeah, totally agree. Right? That's that's the problem. That's like the you know Hobbesian, Lockean kind of version um, of of private sphere. But that's not the only way of, of thinking about. It. It's not even the only way of thinking about it within liberalism, right? The kind of again the like the Rousseau, Kant, Hegel line is much more robust than that in thinking about what the private sphere is. In fact, Hegel even collapses the private sphere into the public in a sense. Maybe he breaks down. The dichotomy in a helpful way by by noting that you can't have anything like self-governance or autonomy except within given social rules that you are then affirmed by right in return like a reciprocation between the autonomous individual and the social order that they're within so it's like dialectical interplay there um like that's that to me is like that's a kind of liberal it's a it's a kind of liberal anti-liberalism within liberalism but that notion of like political self political co-determination as being the way that you achieve self-determination right mm. as a necessary ingredient and condition of self-determination it's a very different way of thinking about what self-governance looks like than i do what i want with my shit the private property model right so I agree that that model is destructive and it's it's the number one thing that's that diseases our social order currently, right? And we should think differently than that. I guess I, I don't think it's just terminological and saying like, therefore, I'm not a liberal or therefore, I'm just a left liberal or something. Hmm. Um, but I wonder a bit about if those lines are as clean as, as Liam's making them out to be. Um, there's certainly lines there. Like, I don't want to say that, you know, someone who's an anarchist or a Marxist is therefore a left liberal. Like we don't want to collapse them, right? There's those different traditions there, different ways of thinking. Hmm. Um, but I do wonder if enough credence, uh, and I wouldn't call myself a left liberal, by the way, but I, but I wonder if uh, enough credence is begin, being given to um, the robustness of that kind of tradition um, in thinking about these things, uh, since it's kind of being collapsed in my mind to this, this, 
singular strain of private property focused versions of autonomy and freedom and self-governance, which of course I would wholeheartedly reject. Do you think he would, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, do you that? think he would disagree with that? I don't know. I mean, he 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 mentions left liberalism and kind of just it seems to me maybe I'm missing something, but kind of refers to it as being like welfareist liberals. Like that's what left liberalism is, mm-hmm. and that's not true. <laughs> um, there are further left left liberals than welfareists. Um, I mean, he names Rawls, and Rawls thinks that welfare state capitalism is unjust, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Explicitly says so. He thinks there's no form of capitalism that is just. Uh, including welfare state capitalism. Um, so, and Rawls is not that left, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I'm, I would definitely consider myself further left than Rawls. And he's, I think, left of the way that Liam's talking about this right here, uh, even though he seems to be the paragon of of left liberalism in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I just think there's more space here within liberalism. And I feel like I'm, I'm being the, the apologist for liberalism, which hey, yeah. I don't necessarily like want to stake myself on. But I think it's, it's, it's a little bit more complicated and maybe there's a little bit more reductionism happening here mm. in talking about liberalism where I, I think it's a lot broader of a tradition uh, than maybe it's being given credit for. And I would expand the notion of capitalism beyond just being a system of commodity production and uh, the private ownership of the means of production as analyzed by Marx. I think that in some ways Marx's analysis or critique, Marx and Engels, their analysis and critique of capitalism is limited in that it's wrong partly, partly because of where they were Mm -hmm. living in Manchester, right? Like they had a very particular experience of the emergence of factory-based industrial capitalism that was very different than if they had lived in Birmingham, for example, whereas there are people who are political yeah. geographers that have talked about this, that they say that if they had experienced that, then maybe their conception of capitalism was different, which is then why you get people like Emmanuel <laughs> Wallerstein and whatnot that develop world systems theory, that develop different understandings, but while still retaining the core critique of Marx's critique of capital. But I would actually even say that the critique of capital itself is limited. And I think that we need to go back to like 13th, 14th, 15th century developments of double entry bookkeeping. And I think that it's much more akin to a type of logical way of understanding the process of inscription and coding and then um, uh, the acts of enclosure and then the forms of quantification that are rooted in certain types of rationality. So for me then, when you start doing that, when you start broadening out what capitalism is, not just as a mode of production, but as a mode of reason or um, as a form of rationality, then what ends up happening is then somebody like Rawls is anti-capitalist in the sense that he wants a different formulation of a mode of production. But I think that liberalism is still comes out of that deeper tendencies of rationality that we see emerging on the continent around that, you know, around the fucking Renaissance, right? Um, so for me, that's where I kind of am like, okay, I think there's, there's, there's more, it's more complex even than what he's um, alluding to here, but in a different way than what you're critiquing him for. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And I'm definitely thinking about this a little bit more with a um, American mindset, right? yeah. Which is which is fair, right? Because I think there's there's a sense in which because you're reading a lot of uh, you know European um, like social anthropologists and stuff, yeah. And so it's I think it's good to have these two different kind of visions, um, both I think more robust than than what 
maybe Liam's presenting, even though this is a small piece. So I'm not like claiming this is his entire view of this, of this, <laughs> right, um, right. Of this idea, right? But uh, it's helpful because it speaks to the complexities of the matters involved here, right? Yeah. Um, and I will say like, may, maybe this is the most, for me, like the, the way of kind of really oversimplifying it. Um, and maybe it's, like, this is like a sloganeering thing, but like I would consider myself, if I was going to put a political label on myself, I would call myself a democratic socialist. Okay. Not because of the um, the way that term is used in like, like current discourse to refer to really left liberal positions, right? Not even socialist positions, um, in a way that Liam mentioned in this in this piece, right? Um, but because I think that uh, a socialist economy is the the best way to actually achieve and realize democratic um, goals. And I, and I define democratic goals in a largely kind of Hegelian vein as like, as I've been saying, political co-determination, right? Um, so, and socialism is the way of, of, of best way of realizing uh, that political and social goal of democracy. Um, if that makes sense as kind of a governing ideology, right? Then you've just shown how anti-liberal and liberal ideas can kind of fit together because mm. socialism is like kind of anti-liberal idea and democracy is a very liberal idea. <laughs> mm. Right. Um, and so all my favorite figures in the history of philosophy are critics of liberalism within liberalism for this reason, <laughs> right? Because they realize that certain goals within liberalism aren't achievable with liberal means, right? There's a kind of incoherence in liberalism as it as it, as it exists, or as the you know it's actually practiced in in real life, and that's I think probably the best way of thinking about it is that there's a kind of internal incoherence in um, like Western European liberalism as it began, and so that's why we like handering over it so much, right? Because it has these kind of internal contradictions and incoherencies. So kind of trying to manifest those and bring those out and show them is the way to move beyond it, right? So mm -hmm. it's less about, hey, let's realize the, the welfare state in its fullest capacity because then we'll automatically get off the elevator into socialism. That's not it, right? right. That's, that's a really naive kind of like transitory, um, like not even dialectical because there's no contradictions happening there, right? Um, uh, so it's not that. It's much more of a like, we need to deal with the, the incoherencies that exist in current liberalism, um, to even begin to think about what would be a better society to have after it, right? Hmm. So but that means using the tools within liberalism in part to do so. And I don't think that's that's like a, um, I don't think that's necessarily like a naive acceptance of liberalism's terms. No, I think it's very critical within it as well. Hmm. I, I wonder if one of like the key points of difference here then is where you would you would call yourself as the a democratic socialist in the way that you just described. I think I'm like, it, it, like theoretically, at least I'm like a romantic anarcho-capital or anarcho-communist, you know? <laughs> so it's like, I've got a little bit of like the romanticism, the very thing that I said that I didn't want to lean too much into, but I do, I got a little bit of that shit. Um, I tend to be anti-state, um, but not in like a, let's smash the state and let's throw bricks sort of thing. Um, so, cause I'm still like a nice guy. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, but like, <laughs> but like theoretically, I'm like, yeah, fucking throw some bricks. But like me, I'm like, yeah, but I also don't want to like hurt people, you know? <laughs> so it's like, I'm, I'm, but, but yeah, so I wonder if that's what it is. And I just, I just have a hard time. I have a hard time being comfortable with like the scaling up of, um, of institutions without feeling like, without feeling like, um, it's going to just lead to domination and oppression or the stifling of difference or something, you know? So maybe this is like yeah. a little bit of like that Deleuzian influence that, that is kind of deep in me, but it just, so for me, I I'm uncomfortable. So maybe part of the reason then that I respond in the way that I do towards like the welfare state is because to me, the welfare state is still ultimately a capitalist institution that um, operates according to uh, a type of process of coding and overcoding in Deleuze and Guattari's sense um, that stifles difference for the purpose of the concentration of power, for the purpose of the concentration of desiring production, for the purpose of the con concentration of resources. And so for me, it's hard for me to think of centralization and concentration of power in any positive way you know even though even though I, I and then and then at the same time i'm like yeah but i do want to think about the good and as soon as you start thinking in those terms you're like well but then you just have a certain like concentrated conceptual form you know so i i i, I feel torn at that at that place yeah i will just say i mean we should probably move on after this yeah. um because we could just talk about this forever and this has been really, really illuminating, I think, to talk about, um, is we can go back to our discussion about Agamben from a few weeks ago and what happens when you have a kind of anarchic vision that's purely critical of institutions in ways that are totally justified, by the way, obviously. Like we've, that was a, a point that I think we both made. Um, but that has no concept for how an institution could be, a social institution could be legitimate how it could have legitimacy. There's just no room for that, right? Yeah. Because all institutions are necessarily forms of domination, right? Um, what happens is you end up like a Gambin. <laughs> and I think that's that's the problem with like an Agambinian kind of uh, vision of society because it isn't really a vision of society. There isn't a notion of what the, the function of a society is for it to be good by which you could then judge currently existing societies. So like I would share all of the skepticism that you have of existing institutions. And I'm, I think we're, we're similarly critical of all existing institutions, including welfareist ones. Yeah. Um, that said, I guess I'm probably a little bit more optimistic about the potential for having social institutions that are not um, forms of domination. In fact, in a Hegelian way, they are necessary conditions for realization of mm. autonomy and freedom. And so I don't think, um, and, and kind of a, and this is not what, what the, but philosophical anarchism says, right. But there's a kind of anarchism, which says something like a negative freedom is something you just have inherently right. and social institutions come and stamp it out. And so they're in every case, a, at the, at best are necessary evil. Right. And that, that I would reject, um, and say that there is no form of, um, autonomy or self-governance without uh, social institutions. Uh, and that's, that can be true while it's also true that all existing social institutions are, are forms of domination, right? Yeah. That can also be true. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, that doesn't that doesn't tell you what the institution has to look like for it to be legitimate. Um, that's a super complex question, but I think that there's I'm probably more open to there being room for that being a topic um, of conversation and probably a super important one because that's how we figure out why the current ones suck so bad mm. because they don't function in the appropriate way, right? Mm. Yeah, and this is why I really latch on to the the bit where Liam says, you know, he doesn't have time to go and to think about what the alternative is here. For me, I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I really want to think about what the alternative is in a substantial sense mm. so that I can kind of get out of a little bit of, of it's almost a little bit of a nihilism, you know? Um, yeah. Like that's I, the last thing I would say about you, dude. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. I know. Well, that's the thing is it's like, it's like theoretical nihilism, but like practical naive optimism is basically how I live my life. <laughs> <laughs> so now what I need to do is substantially translate maybe one into the other, you know, get a little bit of that optimism and translate it into some theoretical, some theoretical constructions. Um, that's, that's the well, project. I, mean, I think a, a good, yeah, a good example of that. And maybe you, you think of yourself in the tradition here is, I think in a lot of cases, even though I'm in, in basically no way a philosophical anarchist, it's a, it's the philosophical anarchists who often are much more clear-eyed in their uh, critique of institutions um, than even like the socialists were, mm. right? Going back to like its its origin and in Prada and uh, and then going to like a current day and like David Graeber, right? Mm. Um, and I, I would take, you know, the, the practical side from the anarchists probably more so than most really existing, I mean, than all really existing socialism. Um, so that's a complicated thing there, but there's, <laughs> there's I think it's probably, that's probably good, uh, a good explanation for why philosophical anarchists have, um, have often been much more aware of the, the ways in which institutions go wrong. And so maybe even become better thinkers of good institutions, even though technically you would think it would be the socialists who are supposed to be about mm. good centralized social institutions often suck at it. <laughs> mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, let's, let's leave the main segment on, um, on that note. And uh, shoot, if you out there have any good suggestions for people who have developed some good thinking on this, I mentioned like, you know, some of the like JK Gibson, JK Gibson Graham have done some work on um like alternative economies and um you know obviously you have like people like i mentioned michael albert's paracon and there's all kinds of like you know people talk about like uh the libertarian socialist you know uh, community in rahava and stuff like that but um let us know let us know some thoughts um that you have out there that uh that might be able to fill in some of the gaps here that we're highlighting but Really interesting essay. We'll post the link down below. It's called um, I am, I'm sorry, Why I Am Not a Liberal on, um, the name of the blog is Sooty Empiric. That's S-O-O-T-Y and then Empiric. So you can check it out there. But yeah, we'll post the link down below. And uh, yeah, interesting read. All right. So let's move on to everyone's favorite part of the podcast. And that's the sticky leaves portion. For those who don't know, Sticky Lee's portion of the podcast where one of us talks about whatever it is that's bringing us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So whatever in our theoretical nihilism is allowing us to be practically optimistic, in Austin's words. That's right. So, Austin, <laughs> what's got you practically optimistic? Uh, well, okay, so I got to make this quick because I got to help my girl tape for an audition here. Because, you know, in the world of self-tapes, you don't ever go into an audition anymore. You do everything at home. So we've got our little home studio here. <laughs> And I got to help her set up here uh, in a sec. But 
This is what I will say. I just recently finished watching the series Severance. Have you watched this series? No, I haven't yet. So you can't spoil it for me because I really want to watch it. Okay, so I'm not going to spoil it. So um, I'm just going to say that it's really, really good. Um, like almost great. I haven't decided if it's great yet because if, if station <laughs> 11 is great, I don't want to just use words to the point where they like lose all meaning, but I'm almost, I'm almost there to say that it's great. I think that it's got some really interesting conceptual stuff. The performances are great and I love the aesthetic. Um, I don't know if that was a choice of the creator or if that was a choice of Ben Stiller, who serves as executive producer and directs most of the episodes. I believe most of them or at least half of them. Well, there's nine episodes, so it would have to either be most or less than most. Um, but anyway, I think it's the, the performances are amazing. I think it's really interesting. It's just like fresh sci-fi, which it doesn't feel too yeah. derivative and it's got some interesting ideas. And at the same time, I found myself watching it. And I found myself thinking like, okay, you know, there's clearly like a, a social commentary that's going on here, but it didn't feel so on the nose so as to be like just simply representational, right? Like I didn't find myself going like, oh, um, this person is that person and this company is that company and this country is, you know what I mean? Like, like how so much of like mm. social commentary. Like allegory films, basically. Yeah, yeah. It just kind of felt fresh. Like it was creating a new language and a new aesthetic. I mean, not new, obviously all art is, you know, communicating intertextually, but it just, it felt like it wasn't trying so hard to just be on the nose of like, I'm critiquing Bezos and Amazon or something like that. You know what I mean? Um, it, yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was really well done. And like I said, I'm, I like Adam Scott. I've never been a huge Adam Scott fan, but like, I like him enough, you know, but in this he's fucking phenomenal. Right. Um, and it's something that's a little bit different than what you typically see him in. Like, he's not like the asshole brother, like he is in fucking Step Brothers or um, like in Party Down, you know, like he, he's not doing that. It's like a fucking legitimate serious but also funny and quirky and weird and it's got all kinds of layers role and i really love seeing that when an actor does that um, especially comedic actors i love when actors who i mean i know he's done other drama stuff too but like i love when you see actors who are really strong with comedy make like really strong or, or do really strong roles in um in drama um it kind of like fits mm. with my theory that it's because they're so good at improv that they just understand how to be in the moment and be present yeah. better than so many um like trained actors but it's great i would say oh it's it may be great it's maybe great um but i would say definitely <laughs> check it out we binged it over a fucking weekend when we got back from holiday unwinding so um oh wow yeah dude we just fucking locked ourselves away for you know two days and just binged it well yeah well we hung out and recovered um it was great so or almost great maybe great but yeah so you gotta check it out <laughs> no i'm excited to i, I can't remember uh, Kenton Mayasu has a, has an essay called like science fiction and extra science fiction or something like that, Okay, where he, he uses different kinds of, or do, he categorizes different kinds of science fiction to like, as another example of his notion of like hyper contingency or whatever. Yeah. And I can't remember the actual argument. There was, it was something, it was more complex than this, but something like the way, like the, the level of contingency that it recognizes or whatever. And, and, and I buy the idea that like, maybe that's a cousin to, to what you're saying about how. So much science fiction is, is purely allegorical, and especially the dystopian stuff is this way, right? And it's just like, it's so boring and easy. Um, there's no like work to the interpretation. 
And the best sci-fi historically is always kind of free-floating, mm. right? It's not just polemical. It's not just um, like a romp or whatever. Like it's creating a new world yeah. in a way yes. that is, is it involves the viewer in, in a much more intimate way, I think, because you have to you have to sort of like mentally and cognitively be so much more involved in thinking about how different this world is than your current world and how those different forms elicit all new kinds of, you know, values and concepts and things. And that's, that's all the best sci-fi. So you gotta love that stuff. It doesn't come around very often. So no, I'm glad when it does, I'm super glad when it actually gains some traction in the public sphere, like Severance seems to have. Yeah. I mean, and of course it does have things where you could be like, okay, I, I can see what, I can see kind of clearly what they're saying here, but a lot of it is just like you said, it is the creation of a world. And I think the aesthetic has a lot to do with that. And you notice it Ooh. first thing, like it, it, it looks like it takes place in a certain time period and there's, um, really interesting, like symmetrical design to uh, a lot of the set pieces. And it creates a very sort of kind of like, awkward and uncomfortable world because it's almost like too perfect right like it's too together and then of course as with every sci-fi in the world that is together how it starts to come apart is um is very well done and john taturo's in it and he's fucking amazing and um love taturo man he's great man he's fucking great i just finished watching the night of too so i'm on like a real john taturo oh. kick <laughs> lately um but yeah so definitely if you can check out severance i recommend it Almost great. Maybe great. Maybe maybe I'll say after you watch it and you talk about it, maybe I'll say it was great by then. But I maybe great. <laughs> so Yeah, I'll, I'll try to watch that next so we can talk about it maybe. Okay, cool. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in and checking out our little podcast here. Uh, check out Liam's essay, Why I Am Not a Liberal. We'll post the link down below. Um, or you can just give it an old Google, and it's at the blog that he does called The Sooty Empiric. Um, and then what else? Oh, yeah, Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. That's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Throw us some pennies. Make sure if you are a patron to vote. Break that tie that is currently there between yeah. uh, the Book of Job and uh, whether or not you can be a kind of class trader, or a, what is it? A, a bougie class trader. A bougie yeah. class trader. That's right. An ethical CEO. Um, so go check uh, that out. And I think that's pretty much it, man. Unless there's anything else that you gotta say. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vidania, Marikonsky. Yeah.